Welcome to this edition of the JNNP podcast. COVID-19 continues to have devastating impacts globally, and we're continuing to learn more about how this virus affects us, and in particular, the nervous system. Joining me today to discuss their recent JNNP editorial, Neurology in the Time of COVID, is one of its authors, Dr. Hadi Manji. Dr. Manji is a consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and Ipswich Hospital in the United Kingdom. He has significant expertise in neuroinfectious disease, as well as being the lead author of the Oxford Handbook of Neurology. So Dr. Manji, many thanks for joining me today on today's uh, podcast. Yeah, it was a pleasure. So look, what do we know so far about COVID-19 in terms of its pathology and how this may impact the nervous system? So I think, uh, as with any viral infection, I think there are three or four strands that we have to tease out when we're seeing patients with this disorder. The first is direct viral injury. And I must say, in, so far in the literature, the, the signal for direct viral injury is small. There are a couple of cases reported of encephalitis. So in the paper by Liu that I uh, reviewed in the same uh, edition, they present a case of somebody with convulsions and hiccups and diagnosed encephalitis and found uh, COVID-19 in the CSF. Another Japanese paper presented a, a case with, again, positive CSF. But I must say, from the literature, these cases are few and far between compared to the number of people that have been affected. It may be that with time, we will see more of this. But I think the evidence that the virus itself causing brain damage is at the present rather low. There is another issue which I think will require further assessment, and that is an observation that patients with COVID-19 pneumonia seem to be more obtunded and seem to have more respiratory failure than one would expect from the degree of pneumonia, and whether there could be some form of brainstem involvement. But I think that, again, is something which we will need to see. One of the questions which, which is still uh, not been validated is the, is the problem of CSF PCR for COVID-19. Certainly here in London, the test has not been validated because this would be very important in terms of diagnosing direct COVID infections of the brain. So direct viral injury, I think so far seems to be rather less than one would expect. Then you've got these para-infectious complications, and that's mainly related to hyperstimulation of the immune system such as the acute demyelinating encephalomyelitides one sees after viral infections, particularly in children. So we've certainly seen two cases in the last week of a hemorrhagic leukoencephalopathy, very dramatic, coming on sort of 10 days after the onset of the pneumonic illness with response to steroids. So I think this is the second group of para-infectious complications, which we'll probably see more of. But there is also a note of caution. We've had a case this week of a lady presenting with respiratory symptoms and then progressive weakness. MRI scan showed quite significant right hemisphere swelling that required a decompression craniectomy. And in fact, she turned out to have mycoplasma-related ADM, not COVID. So I think a note of caution that with all these patients, they do need to be fully investigated with MRI scans and CSF and the appropriate serology and not assume anything. The paper by Liu that I reviewed again, they mentioned a patient with COVID-19 who turned out to have tuberculous meningitis. So I think it is important for us as neurologists not to be too blinkered in our approach to these patients. 
The third group will be the post-infectious disorders. And this is something which we're all familiar with, particularly in the context of Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, particularly after the Zika epidemic. We've had a few cases here of Guillain-Barre syndrome, and I think the incidence is higher than you'd expect uh, at this time of the year. There's a paper in the New England Journal from Italy where they described five cases out of a population of 1,200, which means there is a higher incidence since the, the background incidence of GBS is in the region of one to two per 100,000. So I think these post-infectious disorders are again a complication we'll be seeing. And then finally, it's the, it's the systemic effects of the severe illness of you know, hypoxia, sepsis, uh, and these patients will present with encephalopathic type symptoms, so that's delirium, headache, drowsiness. And it's a question trying to tease out what's due to the systemic effect and what's due uh, to the virus or the parainfectious processes. There is quite a lot of data now suggesting that strokes may be more frequent, particularly in the young. And these are large vessel strokes, which may be related to a hyperviscosity type syndrome. Uh, certainly D-dimers and all these markers are all grossly elevated in this group. Cardiolipin antibodies, lupantis coagulant have been described. So I think stroke is one of the things which we probably are going to see more of as a consequence uh, of this COVID-19 infection. So I think those are sort of types of pathologies we'll be seeing. I think in terms of numbers, I think it's early days. I think we need to wait for reports from, uh, from Italy, from, from the US and from the UK in terms of the incidence, because we at the present time don't really have a denominator of how many people are affected by, by the condition. So I think that those are the sort of things we should be looking for and those are the things we're going to be experiencing over the next few months, Colin. Mm. And I'm sure that that's not even including um, the, uh, the, those cases that are going to require neurorehabilitation and the cases of prolonged ICU with critical illness, myopathy, neuropathy, et cetera. We, that's to come, I guess. You actually, as you mentioned, you, you provide a commentary on the uh, paper by Liu and colleagues who describes some of the, the symptoms, neurological symptoms uh, that are seen in COVID-19 patients. Can you just tell us a little bit about that paper in terms of what they saw in terms of uh, types of symptoms and frequencies of symptoms? Yeah, so I think this was a paper describing the experience in China where they were describing a number of symptoms uh, which included headache, dizziness. Uh, and there were about 20 to 30% of patients who had these, these sort of symptoms. Another symptom which was quite interesting was uh, hypogusia and hyposmia, suggesting uh, olfactory nerve involvement. They also described a number of patients with, with strokes but I think it was difficult for them to tease out what was due to the systemic illness and what was due to the virus itself. So for example, they described a number of patients with muscle injury, which they defined by elevated creatinine kinase levels, but we were not given any clinical details in terms of weakness or EMG studies to see if there was indeed muscle damage. So overall, they described neurological symptoms in about uh, 36%. And the other interesting thing was that the more severely affected patients were more likely to present with the neurological uh, symptoms. But I think with time, we should be able to dissect the meanings or the interpretation of these symptoms in terms of whether it's due to systemic illness or the virus itself. Mm. 
And I suppose in the, in the present uh, time, many practicing neurologists and indeed many patients with neurological conditions are concerned about how COVID-19 may impact them. Which patients in the neurology clinic do we need to be most concerned about, do you think? So I think the patients who have disorders affecting uh, the respiratory muscles uh, are the ones we need to be particularly vigilant about. So the patients with motor neuron disease, uh, myasthenia gravis, muscular dystrophy, because if they do get a severe pneumonia, end up on the ventilator, then it will be difficult, uh, I think, for them to be weaned off. Now, some of these patients are on uh, NIPI and CPAP devices already to help their respiration, so they'll be more vulnerable and uh, less likely to come off ventilators. So I think all the neuromuscular disorder patients uh, will need to be carefully monitored. Uh, and then the patients that we have with immunosuppressive drugs, so the myasthenia patients, the chronic inflammatory demyelinating patients, the polymyositis patients, plus patients with multiple sclerosis, all on immunosuppressive drugs. Now, theoretically, they could be perhaps more liable to be infected, but I think we don't have any data or any figures on, on numbers yet, but I think these are the patients who would need to be um, carefully counseled about uh, self-isolating and taking the general uh, advice about hand washing very, very seriously. So the azathioprine, mycophenolate, methotrexate patients, which we have a, a lot of, are the ones which I think we do need to be concerned about. But as yet, we haven't had a massive influx uh, and there's nothing in the literature at the present time to suggest there's been an explosion of COVID-19 in this group of patients. And you and your, your co-authors do provide some uh, practical tips on managing immunosuppression in uh, patients with uh, neurological disorders. Could you summarize uh, some of these recommendations? Yeah, so I mean, I think the first advice is that patients should remain on whatever medications they're on, because I think sometimes stopping these drugs a, may take a long time to work out of the system, and B, would put them in, in, uh, at risk of a, of a relapse, which may be worse than the underlying disease itself. Uh, the second is, certainly with regards to intravenous steroids, I know our MS colleagues developed a higher threshold for giving intravenous steroids to MS relapses patients. And if they are going to give them, perhaps go for oral methylprednisolone, rather than bringing patients into hospital for IV methylprednisolone. So I think the threshold for steroids is, is, is been elevated. And I think starting new drugs uh, perhaps could be delayed if possible. So drugs such as rituximab, uh, perhaps one could wait a few weeks before starting uh, these sort of drugs. So I think the advice is to stay on the drugs patients are on avoid starting any new drugs. And then with drugs like rituximab and ocrelizumab, if one can delay the next cycle of infusions, perhaps one should do that for two reasons. One is from the immune point of view, but also bringing patients into hospital and exposing them to COVID-19. Um, it's very helpful. And I suppose finally, I can't let you go with asking you um, a question as a practicing neurologist in London, um, now one of the hardest hit regions globally. How has COVID-19 affected your practice and in particular, your ability to deliver uh, neurological care to your patients? So it's, everything's changed, really. So if you come to Queen's Square now, it is completely different. So we have, we have no face-to-face -face consultations. 
I'm not going on the wards, partly because of my age, I'm afraid. And in fact, I had two urgent patients to be seen and I had to get a younger colleague, Mary Riley, to see them for me. And the patients know that I had a better deal than they got by seeing Mary Riley than seeing me. But no, still, so we're doing a lot of phone clinics. I'm doing three or four phone clinics, which are a way of just keeping uh, in touch with the patients, but not very satisfactory. We have a COVID ward on, on the, uh, at Queen Square where patients with COVID complications, but also neurological patients with COVID-19 are, are, are staying. We've got a query COVID ward, and then we've got a ward with neurological patients who are non-COVID. And we've got a whole new rotor. All the juniors have been de redeployed. Research registrars have been redeployed. Uh, we have a whole new consultant rotor for the COVID wards, for the non-COVID wards, for the night times. And we actually now also have a consultant who stays in the hospital overnight, uh, which is a huge change in practice. But I must say that, you know, and I think this is true of everywhere in the UK, there is a, a war mentality uh, that everyone's in this together. And the morale is really quite astonishing. People are there because they want to be there and they're doing their bit. So I think there is certainly a, a huge change in, in attitude and, and the morale is, is excellent. And I think there's also a great deal of academic interest um, in this whole COVID story, particularly in terms of neurology. So we've set up a once a week multidisciplinary COVID brain meeting. Mike Zandi and I have set this up and patients are presented and the scans are discussed. And last week we had eight or nine excellent cases. Uh, we had about a hundred people online virtually following the, the, the meeting because everyone wants, wants to learn and see what's going on everywhere really. And I think, so in a sense, you know, although everything's very different, it is very exciting, although slightly anxiety provoking, you know, in the sense that we're all never quite sure when one might get affected. Uh, and certainly colleagues have been uh, off work for periods of time because of being infected really. So I think uh, morale is good, but there is an underlying anxiety amongst all the doctors who are working there really. Well, it's great to hear of people coming together um, so rapidly and, and changing the system so rapidly to, um, to look after patients and, and still at the same time provide excellent um, about care and, and research. And indeed, we wish you well, wish everybody there well um, in, in the, the weeks and months ahead. So I'd like to thank my guest, uh, Dr. Hadi Manji, for going through um, uh, neurology in the time of COVID-19 and remind you that uh, his editorial commentary, along with the paper by Lou Atal, is available to download on the JNNP website now. Thank you. Goodbye.